audiences are tired of problems. If all you do is say, especially when it comes to, to international stories, where like, you know, there's poverty in the world, there's war crimes, you know, there's disease, like tell me something I didn't know. The audience gets really tired of those stories and we hear feedback from, from the public about this. So particularly younger people. So if you can go out there and find these important issues, but then also look at what's being done, not necessarily advocating for solutions, but report that's part of the reporting. You know, here's a problem, but there are actually people trying to make a difference. And maybe that solution isn't working, but it's you can learn something from just looking at those solutions. I think that's hugely valuable and we've gotten great response from the public that there there's a hunger for the sort of silver lining on those clouds. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about the changing digital media landscape. On the phone with you today is Peter Klein, an Emmy award-winning journalist and filmmaker. Peter was a longtime producer at CBS News's 60 Minutes, as well as a producer at ABC News's Law and Justice Unit, where he conducted investigations for Nightline 2020 and World News Tonight. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. So we're talking today about uh, what you're working on now. It's it's great to have you on the podcast, but uh, tell me a little bit about the uh, Global Reporting Center. The goal of the Global Reporting Center is to find stories that are not being told or not being told well around the world, undercovered stories. In a way, I think of ourselves as kind of like Doctors Without Borders is with diseases. You know, they deal with neglected diseases. We deal with neglected stories. And we also try to do these stories in a different, innovative way. I mean, I've spent most of my career doing global reporting in a very traditional way, in a very sort of typical foreign correspondent, parachute journalism way. And there's clearly value to that, you know, bringing an outsider's eye, making the world relevant to us back home. But there's some real limitations to that, you know, of like the, the journalists flying in from New York or London or, or Paris to some far off place, hiring up a local journalist as a fixer for, for a couple of weeks and essentially forcing that fixer to meet the vision that, that you have as an outsider. And there's some real flaws to that. And, I, and I've personally experienced that. So we're trying to change how global journalism is done. So let's before we get too deep into this, I, I want to talk a little bit about your career and your, your journalist journey. So how did you get involved in journalism? Well, you know, I, I kind of got in, involved in journalism for two mostly bad reasons and one mildly good reason. The, the two bad reasons were, one, I couldn't decide on a major in college. I, I jumped <laughs> around. I, I studied wildlife science. I studied pre-med. I studied math, music, philosophy, economics. And I just, I, I basically couldn't commit. And I thought, well, journalism is kind of a great way to kind of do everything. You can kind of study everything. In a way, you're, you're a student for life because, you know, one, one week you might be doing an economic story. Another week you might be doing a cultural story. Another week you might be going off to some far place doing a political story in a country you've never heard of before. And also, you know, I'd done a little bit of travel, and I always felt uncomfortable as a tourist, but I, but I had this hunger to see the world. And I thought, well, gosh, journalism is kind of an interesting way to have a reason, an excuse to be in these kind of far-off, obscure places. Someone else pays your, your travel bill, too. So in hindsight, those are both terrible reasons to become a journalist, because if you really are a generalist, you're jumping all over the place, and you don't have any real substantive knowledge in a particular area. And you're essentially making your career faking it, which is what a lot of journalists do. And we get very, very good at getting up to speed on a topic very quickly and doing the best job we can. And I think, you know, most of us have really good intentions in the journalism we do, but without some real 
long-term reporting on an area and some you know, reputation in the area. It's hard to develop sources. It's hard to develop some real respect in, in reporting on a particular topic. And uh, you know, the sort of quasi-good reason was that, that some of my heroes were journalists. You know, Woodward and Bernstein, like so many people of, of our generation, that was you know, the, the kind of pinnacle of journalism. You know, watching the movie The Killing Fields, I remember thinking, like, God, that would be to do that would be like such an amazing experience in life. But as I've matured as a journalist, I've realized some of the, some of the problems and challenges, and, and you know, it sort of brings us back to the Global Reporting Center, which is why I left, you know, these really great gigs in, in New York in, in mainstream media to to move out west and, and try something very different. Yeah, and, and by out west, it's also sort of west and north. You're up in British Columbia. I am right. Okay, and, and it's you're at the the university there. Which which university is there? Yeah, I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia. And, you know, one of, what I did when I first got here about a decade ago now, it's hard to believe, is I started a course called the International Reporting Program. Um, I really wanted to, to be able to teach. I was, I was part-time. I was still working on 60-minute stories and, and working on, on other kinds of journalism, which I continue to do. But I was only part-time at the university. But uh, I really wanted to teach global reporting by taking students into the field. Anyone who's been in the classroom knows students are very, very good at critiquing the world. And, uh, you know, they're... They're great kind of armchair quarterbacks, and they can look at the New York Times and CBS News and, you know, The Independent and The Global Mail and, and critique how reporting is done. And some of those critiques are incredibly valid and, and actually really thoughtful, but, but they're all also coming from a place of sort of an intellectual place, not a, a place of experience. So I wanted to give the students an experience, the, the opportunity to actually go into the field and try this and, and make mistakes and realize how hard it really is to do this. And that's kind of where this whole Global Reporting Center has grown out of. It's grown out of this international reporting class that, that I've been teaching for the last, uh, well, I taught for seven years, and this last year I was on sabbatical. So is this a program that maybe you might have benefited from early on? Oh, my God, yeah. You know, I, when I was in, I went to journalism school, and I, when I took international reporting, and it was a it was a wonderful teacher, Trevor Rowe, who was this stringer at the United Nations. He had a string with the Washington Post. Um, he was I'm not Canadian, uh, but he it was my first connection to Canada because he was a Canadian journalist. He was a reporter for the Toronto Star, the CBC, National Public Radio, and the Washington Post. He was their stringer at the, the United Nations, so he was pretty busy as a working journalist. And the class was held actually at the United Nations, which was pretty cool. You get to go into the United Nations. We got to go to the Secretary General's briefings every once in a while, which was kind of neat. The Bosnian War was just starting, so there was, you know, there's still stuff going on in Cambodia. So there was kind of interesting things going on at the United Nations, but we were really reporting international affairs from such a far away kind of distance. And and it was it was a bit of a hollow experience for me. Of course, you know, we didn't have the funds, we didn't have the, the opportunity to go abroad to do this reporting and, you know, it's no critique of, of the class and I'm sure I learned a lot. But it definitely stuck with me that, you know, if you want to do this kind of work, you have to go into the field. You have to get some experience. And you know, the other thing is so many people are starting out as journalists and they go into the field for the first time on their own and often get into trouble. I mean, they'll they get into editorial trouble because they don't know what they're doing and they make mistakes and all that. But there's also huge safety issues. I mean, we've seen so many young, fairly inexperienced journalists get into trouble uh, trying to sort of make their, their, their names and their careers by going to, to hostile regions. Um, so, you know, we wanted to kind of ease budding global journalists into this with a little bit of mentorship in the field. Okay. Well, and sort of continuing on that on that line, what is it? You, what is it you tell a young journalist who wants to get into global journalism that, that what they should be thinking about? You know, it goes back. 
back to the mistakes I made, which is trying to be too much of a generalist. It's really fun to be a generalist, but it's, it's you're not really contributing a lot. So you know, again, with with what we're trying to do with this global reporting center, we're we're, we're really kind of grounding what we do in knowledge. So if you're a young journalist and you want to get going, find an area that you really excel at. Get some knowledge in it. You know, maybe take some classes in it, read some books in it, develop some some real sources in an area, and you know whether it's global health or development issues or whatever it may be, and develop some reputation because that's really how you're going to get to be known. You know, you break a couple of stories or even you write a few pieces or do a few pieces that, that have some really thoughtful, critical analysis or, or bring something different. That I mean, the, the, the media is so saturated right now that it's, you know, in some ways it's, it's harder than ever to cut through all that noise. But most of it is noise. So in a way, if you can really distinguish yourself and do something different and special, you can actually cut through that noise. So in some respects, it's easier than, than certainly when I started out where, you know, you had to, you, you needed a job, basically. You know, you couldn't just kind of, hey, I'm just going to do my own freelance stuff. What does that mean, freelance stuff? Where you're going to post it on a, on a billboard, you know, in the town square? Like there was no internet that we could post our stories on. So when I graduated from school, the, the one job I was offered was in, in Trenton, New Jersey, and it was a newspaper offering me half-time pay, but I, I would likely have to work full-time and I wouldn't get benefits. And, you know, that was like, that was the one full-time gig I, I was being offered. That sounds and very familiar. Then, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, people think it's bad now, but it was it was bad in the 80s and 90s, too. It was always been hard to get a break in, but then it was really hard to break in because you had to go through those handful of gatekeepers. Now you really can. I mean, God, you, you could make your name just blogging if you really are doing really interesting Stuff. Now, you may not make a lot of money doing that initially, but once you develop a reputation um, and once you develop a following, you actually can make some money. And you could get one of those traditional jobs if you wanted to, or you could find other ways of, of making money. So the Global Reporting Center sort of grew out of the, the course that you were doing. What, why did you feel there was sort of a need to sort of establish this? Well, you know, the course has been great, but it's, it is a course, ultimately. The number one goal is to teach students. And the secondary goal, and we were very, very fortunate to have philanthropic funding that, that got this course going, but the goal was primarily teaching. Secondary goal was to produce works of journalism on undercovered global issues. I wanted to flip that a little bit and say, okay, well, what if, if we wanted to primarily do really important, good projects on undercovered global issues and find innovative ways of doing it, challenging the sort of assumed ways that we do global journalism, we would really have to bring in some professionals and have them be the front. So we, we're going to continue the class. We want to continue offering these amazing opportunities to young journalists. But we also want to be able to take on much more ambitious projects, projects that maybe take longer than a year, projects that maybe take you to areas that, that are perhaps dangerous to go to. We're working with a journalist right now to develop a, a project on Boko Haram. Well, I wouldn't send my students necessarily into Nigeria to do a story on Boko Haram, but a journalist who is experienced and who can bring in some real nuance to it and is open to working with, with scholars. I mean, that's the other benefit of being at a, at a university, that you know, when you're in a big university like University of British Columbia is, I mean, it's a huge, huge university, top 40 university in the world. You have pretty much any topic you could think of. You've got a handful of world-class scholars who um, dedicated their whole lives to studying this issue. And they're not journalists, and they don't necessarily know how to communicate their scholarship with a broader audience. But that's where we come in as journalists. You know, we can talk to them and really learn a lot from, from them about a, 
a particular topic. And, you know, the other thing is sometimes we get stories from them. You know, academics and journalists have, have at least in my, my experience, kind of a, a tense relationship sometimes. You know, we don't love interviewing academics on, on camera, on the record, because they can get really kind of mired in the details of what they're doing and get really wonky. But they have a huge amount to contribute, and because they have dedicated their whole lives to a particular topic. So some of the best projects we've done have grown out of sometimes even very casual conversations with really leading scholars in an area. It's very different than how we typically find stories where, you know, you'll find a really interesting story. You'll find a narrative or a case that happened or, you know, something that's basically you find great stories, right? Don Hewitt, my, my old boss, the founder of 60 Minutes, you know, his, his motto is always tell me a story. You know, we do stories about people, about stories, not about issues, which is true. And 60 Minutes has, has been wildly successful with that model. But that's the end, end result. Where you start from often is like, here's some interesting story going on somewhere. Now let's figure out what the bigger issue is. But you can flip that and say, well, what's a big issue that's not being covered? And then let's put our journalistic skills into play and figure out a way to make that really compelling. And to, to meet, you know, Don Hewitt's got a great goal of tell me a great story. So on your website, in the description about the program, you talk about producing solutions-oriented journalism. How does that sort of figure into your formula here? Well, solutions is, is a, I think, an important part of the equation for a couple of reasons. And I have to give credit to a number of different people, but particularly um, Dave Beers, who was an editor at Mother Jones for many years and started a, a really pioneering news site called the TIE, has been really dedicated to solutions journalism and, and was the first person to really get me thinking about, you know, don't just go out there and talk about the problems in the world. You know, take the extra effort and look at some of those solutions. And my initial reaction was like, you know, which is the reaction that I think a lot of a lot of old school journalists, and I consider myself one of those old school journalists, have, which is like, look, I'm not an activist. Human Rights Watch, Greenpeace, they, they do great work, and they want to push solutions. That's great. But I'm here to just do dispassionate work of journalism. But, you know, as I've thought more about this, and my, my, the, the managing editor of the Global Reporting Center, a long time, much more old school than me, journalist, Dave Rummel, who was a, a producer at 60 Minutes for many years and founded the New York, New York Times video unit and, you know, has been in kind of high-level management positions in, in journalism for, for four, four decades. He's also really helped me think about this in a different way. And he said, look, audiences are tired of problems. If all you do is say, especially when it comes to, to international stories, where, like, you know, there's poverty in the world. There's war crimes. You know, there's disease. Like, tell me something I didn't know. The audience gets really tired of those stories, and we hear feedback from, from the public about this. So particularly younger people. So if you can go out there and find these important issues, but then also look at what's being done, not necessarily advocating for solutions, but report that's part of the reporting. You know, here's a problem, but there are actually people trying to make a difference. And maybe that solution isn't working, but it's, you can learn something from just looking at those solutions. I think that's hugely valuable, and we've gotten great response from the public that there, there's a hunger for the sort of silver lining on those clouds. Can you give me an example of a story where you had that sort of aspect to it? Sure. I mean, we, we just recently finished a, a project actually with, with the class, with the international reporting class, which we've now brought into the Global Reporting Center and are, are building further. It's called Out of the Shadows. And it's about mental illness around the world. Like, can you get any more <laughs> depressing than, than that? I mean, it's a pretty heavy topic. Mental illness, treating it, you know, right here in North America is, is hugely challenging, as we know. You know, imagine adding to that 
a very, very poor country, so you don't have the resources. You basically have no infrastructure for psychiatric care. Add to that cultural issues, like people don't even understand the science of this. Maybe there's superstitions around this. You know, all those kind of challenges in, 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 in places makes this an incredibly difficult topic to report on. And we went to a number of different countries, including West Africa, to Togo and Benin. And in Togo, where there's three psychiatrists for the whole country, three or four psychiatrists for the entire country, when people have a, a loved one, or a friend or a relative who's who's you know really out of control and, and has has some serious psychiatric problems, they'll often take them to prayer camps. And at the prayer camps, they often get chained to trees. So you know, we found 153 people chained to trees in a forest grove in in Togo. Dave Rommel, the managing editor, is the one who led that team. And I mean, they found this unbelievably grim, horrific image of you know. I mean, in some ways, even worse than slavery. These people are literally just chained to trees and left there for weeks, months, for long periods of time, often without any clothes on. I mean, it cannot get sort of darker than that. But what we also found was that this guy in Benin, a neighboring Benin, who had himself suffered from mental illness, realized these people are being chained. This is terrible. I need to do something. And some, in miraculous ways, somehow mobilized people all over the world, particularly in the French-speaking world, because these are French-speaking countries, psych- brought psychiatrists in and created clinics, drop-in clinics, where basically just kind of a grassroots psychiatric and psychological health care for people who are in trouble. And in Benin, most of these prayer camps have been shut down because there's a better alternative. And so, you know, here's like a a kind of a community-based grassroots problem that is actually having tangible solutions. So, you know, if you just look at that problem, it could be so overwhelming that, frankly, you might turn off your audience. But if you could actually find, you know, something that's positive that's happening, even if it's somewhere else that that can be modeled, you know, it, it brings some hope and it may even bring some change. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great way to to sort of approach it, and, and you know, as you say, it's something that is going to make it easier for your reader to to be, you know, maybe drawn into the story. Sometimes it's very frustrating when you when there are these just endless story, stories of despair and, and and trouble and difficulty, and there's no solution offered, or there's no there seems to be no hope. It's like, well, I guess that's that's just the way things are. There's no way to change it. But you know, by including stories uh, like this. You know, it gives you a degree of hope and, and maybe even open opportunities for other people who read that story to say there are people who are helping. Maybe maybe I can help or maybe there's resources that, that can go to this to, to change the situation. No, absolutely. But I mean, don't you find, though, that, that there is still this resistance amongst journalists? To veer into, even though a lot of journalists have very strong opinions about, you know, whatever, human rights, climate change, issues like that, they may have personal opinions about it. But I find that a lot of journalists are afraid to allow that to seemingly seep into their their journalism because then they might be seen as you know, being on advocacy. And, you know, what, what, what I find is that particularly younger journalists, you know, I, I work with a lot of people in their 20s, they don't see those lines in, in the way that I think older journalists had, you know, between public relations and advocacy and journalism, those were three different kind of roads you can go down. And you kind of didn't really jump in between them. Or maybe you made one leap. You know, you may have gone from journalism to PR, but you certainly didn't go back from PR to journalism. Or you may have gone from, you know, journalism to advocacy, but you wouldn't go back from advocacy to journalism. But today we do see people jumping back and forth all the time, you know, many times during their careers. So, I mean, I, I find that those, those lines are much more blurred. And there's, you know, there's, there's some challenges to that as well. But I think there's also, it, it opens us 
up into redefining what journalism is. Yeah, I, I really I agree with you on that. We just had a, a podcast about solutions journalism, and we had a really good discussion about it. And I think, you know, you and I are old journalists. We were we were in those old structures, and there were a lot of rules to those structures. And, you know, sometimes it's really easy to, to, to just go down that corridor and not, you know, think the other, well, I, I did my due diligence. I, you know, I, I reported what I saw and that's all I had to do. But, you know, now that now that the structures are gone, it, you know, I think there are opportunities for people to write different types of stories and, you know, show that there are resources in, out there and, and report wider stories. And I think people are hungry for that. No, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, the other, the other part of this is there, there's another, this happens to be a health story as well, but there's another project that actually grew out of one of these kind of questions to an expert. I, I asked at, literally at dinner, I was at a dinner in, in Brooklyn, and I happened to be sitting next to one of the top people from Doctors Without Borders, and I said to him, um, hey, you know, what, what's the story that journalists are just getting wrong or not getting in, in global health? And, you know, it's kind of a whimsical question, but uh, he had an answer ready. Like, he was clearly a thought about this. And he said, look, AIDS, cholera, malaria, all those things get attention. But nobody ever talks about palliative care. Most people are going to die. You know, they're not going to get the treatments. They're going to die and oftentimes die in horrific pain. And because of the global war on drugs, in so many countries around the world, pretty much half the countries in the world, you can't get medical-grade morphine. And in the past, you used to be able to, or they, or they were traditional, you know, you'd have, have opium or whatever, you know, kind of traditional ways of, of dealing with, with pain uh, through, through kind of natural opiates. But the global war on drugs has curtailed that, and obviously there's been some great benefits to that. But this weird little side effect of it is that people don't have access to, to medical-grade medical grade palliative care. So we thought this was a really interesting topic. We went all over the world, went to Ukraine, we went to, went to Africa, went all over to look at, at both problems. We looked at a solution in Uganda, um, and we went to India, which is India, the largest supplier of, 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 of medical morphine in the world, and yet almost every state in India doesn't have access to morphine. So anyway, long story short, we did this project and these activists who from Human Rights Watch and from some different doctors who work around palliative care have been using our little documentary. This is a student project. They've been using our little documentary in their advocacy around the world. And they have come back to us and they've credited us for helping to, to like they've, they've, they've sent us pictures of them, you know, screening this in, in different major conferences around the world. And Ukraine and India, India have both changed their laws around access to, to palliative care. And they said we had a role in that. I mean, that's incredible, you know, to feel that to pain treatment now, you know, at the end of their lives, dying of painful bone cancer. And instead of screaming in agony, they're actually in comfort and they're, you know, they're, they're kind of ending their lives in, in, in some semblance of peace because of a work of journalism you've done. I mean, to have that connection to, to a solution is, you know, more powerful and more valuable than, than any Pulitzer or Emmy or, you know, DuPont that we could ever win. Um, and, you know, I think that's really where we have some, some great um, value to add because, because people aren't doing these stories. You know, they're, they're, they're very hard to do. They're complex. They, they don't seem like the obvious, um, you know, sexy stories for, for mainstream media. But I think that there's an important imperative to get these stories done. Part of the challenge of your reporting is to to make people see why these are important stories to to cover, and right. and also the fact is you know this again going back to what your former producer had said is this is all about telling stories and people want to hear the stories of when things work and why a system is screwed up and you know maybe th maybe that system doesn't have to be screwed up 
And that just requires, I mean, as far as this whole idea of, oh, you know, you're a journalist, oh my God, you're turning into an advocate, you know, provided you're, you're transparent about your process and, you know, fair, you know, I, I don't think those are much as great a concerns. Yeah, and I think it's part of the reporting, right? Yeah. You know, if, if you are observing a problem and a solution and you're not reporting on the solution, you're not actually doing your proper reporting because that's part of what you're observing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what this whole thing is about. So, and when, that's what's actually kind of exciting about it. And one of the things, the other things I was thinking about where you were talking is, you know, the other thing is the, in the, under the old structures where we didn't have a lot of the resources that, that we have through digital technology that, you know, quite often you were reporting that one story because narrowly, because that's kind of all you could sort of do. And the fact that the story be published in a, in, in a paper or it would be on a TV show and, and disappear, but you know now we're creating we're creating news stories, complex news stories that are living online that can be constantly updated, and you can you could sort of build on those and bring in different aspects and tell tell more complete stories. You know, absolutely. I think that's a that's a big part of it. You can stay on stories. You know, in the past, we as you say, we'd file your story and you'd move on, right? right? But now you can you can continue like this mental health project I just mentioned. You know, that was done a year ago, and that was in the New York Times and Al Jazeera and and a big website we built that's you know won some awards, which is great. But I mean, I literally today I had a conversation with a journalist who who has this really amazing story about PTSD story in in uh, Africa that fits really nicely into the continuing narrative of our of this out of the shadows project so we can continue building on it which is great and and you know you now you've already have a an audience that is interested in your project you have a little bit of branding around this this project and you can keep building it yeah and, and your story seemed to be a real mix of uh different approaches here it's not only long form text pieces but you also have video and photography around it so what's the process for developing a story and identifying how to how is the best way to tell it well, that's definitely we're uh, genre agnostic. Uh, so, you know, whatever whatever the best medium or mediums are to tell a story, we we try to employ. And, and you know, we're fortunate to have a wide range of you know skill sets amongst the people who are collaborating with us. We just last night we premiered a student project that was run by a colleague of mine, Taylor Owen. He's become you know very quickly has become one of the the authorities around virtual reality. And it's a story about uh, poverty and, and HIV in, in Chile, which are, you know, again, kind of arm's length issues. You know, there's poverty and there's, there's HIV in, in a country. Well, tell me something I didn't know. But he has this really interesting approach to virtual reality that, you know, virtual reality can really foster empathy in people. You know, if you see somebody on a 2D screen speaking in a foreign language about something that's so far away from your own experience, there's a huge, huge chasm between that. But if you're experiencing it in a virtual reality space, even if they're speaking a foreign language, you know, you can kind of see them in this 3D form. You can actually develop a certain level of empathy that you, you wouldn't necessarily be able to from reading their story or hearing their voice or looking at them on screen. So, I mean, I think that's a great use of technology to actually further global journalism. You know, also with small cameras and things like that, we have a new project that we, we're, we're working on right now called Strangers at Home that actually grew out of a, a journalist who, who's affiliated with us in Europe who came to me and said, look, they came to me two years ago, and this is before the, the current issues around uh, the Syrian refugee crisis and before the Charlie Hebdo attack. So two years ago, he said, look, there is this palpable sense of xenophobia in Europe that 
people back in North America just don't seem to understand. And it's anti-Roma, it's anti-Jewish, it's anti-Muslim, it's anti-immigrant, it's, it's anti-LGBTQ, and, and uh, certainly in Eastern Europe. There's something going on. It's grown out of the economic crisis. It's grown out of all sorts of different things. But this is a topic that you guys should be doing. So I thought, well, if we came in as outsiders, the typical kind of foreign correspondent method, sending in North American journalists, you can imagine the story we would do. You know, you'd have the sort of the gypsy camp that's been burned down and the, the Jewish person who feels like there's more anti-Semitism and the couple experts talk about the economic crisis. And, you know, you'd have the fascist person who says the, the rights of white Europeans is being infringed upon. I mean, it's kind of it's a cliche story. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe flip to some archival shots of Hitler. But. It's so much more complex than that. So we thought, how do you capture that complexity? What if we empower people in these countries to tell their own stories? Everybody has a cell phone now with, like, video that's better than, than you know, some of the stuff that was broadcast 20 years ago. So what if we found some money to actually commission pieces from people? Could be professional filmmakers, could be you know, cartoonists could be just average people. We have a 19-year-old kid in Malmo, Sweden, who did a did a, a story for us. Um, he has no journalism background. We have a, a musician, the famous Queen of the Gypsies, Roma musician in, in Macedonia, who's done a project for us. We have a, a cartoonist and a, a graphic novelist in Serbia who's done a project for us. And this this is coming from the ground up, you know, from people who live in these countries, speak the language, know the culture, and can really capture the nuance and the perspective. We have a neo-fascist in Italy who basically makes his case for, look, I have nothing against these people, but white Italians aren't, aren't having jobs. So can you understand why we're pissed off? I think we want, to ta- we want to have lots of different voices. And by empowering those voices, we have this really great kind of pastiche of stories that doesn't really necessarily give you one solution or one perspective. It gives you lots of lots of perspectives. But that's also made possible because of technology, because we've been able to empower people. We don't have to send a high-end crew on an expensive air, airplane flight over, over the Atlantic. We can empower people in those countries to tell their own stories. Yeah. And again, what is this project called? It's called Strangers at Home. Yeah. And I did want to talk to you about this because I was really kind of blown away by your presentation of it. It's very simple. It's, as you described it, lots of different voices. And it's one of those things that when you look at the the page with all of these different videos, all of these different perspectives about really just hate in multiple different countries, it's just one of those things that just makes you go, huh. And each segment has its own you know, perspective, but taken together... Uh, they tell even a bigger story, and I think you know that's that's very powerful. Well, thank you. And you know that I, I don't want to tell you how little <laughs> it costs to make that. I mean, it was mostly blood and, and sweat is what paid for it. But um, I have a colleague, Shana Plout, who's uh, who's actually an academic and has a PhD in these areas, and she's brought a huge amount of sort of substantive knowledge and brought lots of experts into this to really help us kind of capture the the, the complexities of this. And I think that, that you know again that's the kind of thing that, that that really is valuable doing this at a, at a university where you can bring these these different voices. But you know that's just very much the beginning of this project. We did a little crowdfunding campaign to get this little pilot, and we commissioned these little shorts. We want to commission more of them, and we actually want to do a full documentary where we'll, we'll have longer, like 15, 20-minute short documentaries that are like different chapters, so like six, five or six different chapters of five or six different perspectives on the issue of xenophobia in Europe from different people who are, you know, we want to pair them with really skilled filmmakers 
to make Portmanteau documentary film. So we're in the process of fundraising for that. So you're doing crowdfunding. The GRC is a, is a nonprofit organization. So how do, how do you guys pay for your journalism? Well, so most nonprofits primarily live off of donations. And there's a you know, really wonderful community of, of nonprofits that have been you know, an inspiration for us in the United States, ProPublica, Center for Investigative Reporting, Center for Public Integrity. I mean, there's a long list of them that, that, that have been you know, very, very successful, uh, but they mostly subsist off of, of donations from individuals or from foundations, partly because we want to have a long-term goal. You know, we want to be able to be around 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. And foundations aren't going to pony up money every single year forever, right? They want to see you being sustainable, partly because we also do a lot of video. We do a lot of multimedia, and now we're getting into virtual reality. You know, these things cost a lot of money. If you stick to print and photography and, and sometimes audio, you can keep your costs fairly low. But once you start getting into the production costs, it can get very expensive. But the flip side of that is that you have broadcasters who – are actually genuinely dedicated to doing these kinds of stories. They want to do these stories. They just can't afford to do it. The whole reason for nonprofits existing is that it's too expensive for the for-profit news organizations to do these stories. You know, 20 years ago, you might be able to get a $100,000 budget in six months to go do a story, but today that's just unheard of. So the nonprofits have stepped in and said, okay, well, we'll, we'll fill that gap. We'll do those expensive things. Because, you know, it makes sense for a for-profit company, if their audience has gotten smaller, their, their ad rates have gotten smaller, of course they're going to cut the most expensive thing, which the second most expensive thing is investigative reporting. The most expensive thing is global investigative reporting, because then you have the whole global aspect of it. So, you know, we're the first budget item to get cut in the sort of mainstream newsrooms. So we have, you know, appealed to philanthropists and to foundations to support what we're doing, but we also bring in money from our news partners. You know, if we're able to do, let's say, a, you know, a three or $400,000 documentary uh, is what, what might cost to, to do a documentary. Well, if a, if a broadcaster can bring in half that money, if they might be willing to spend that on a domestic project, we say, well, why don't you give us what you're going to spend on the domestic project? We'll supplement it and we'll bring you a really great global global project. So, you know, we can bring in funding in that way as well. And because we're in an academic institution, we actually can bring in academic funding too. In Canada in particular, there's a Social Sciences Humanities Research Council, SHRC, which really values what in the academic parlance they call knowledge mobilization or knowledge translation. You know, academics do all this great work, but it usually is, you know, for a small audience of insiders, you know, reading in peer-reviewed journals. But how do you get that information, that research into the broader world if it really is relevant? Well, that's where we come in. That's what journalists do. You know, knowledge mobilization, in my mind, is a euphemism for journalism. So we have been successful in, in making the argument to these academic uh, funders that we can actually bring something to the table here and we can partner with academics, but also bring in high-level journalists around the world and bring that sort of substantive knowledge out to a large audience. You know, an academic piece might might have, you know, if you have 100 or 200 citations, you like doing amazingly well. Well, we could bring it to literally millions of people. So there's some real, you know, we can really magnify that kind of work. So who, who are some of the news organizations you work with? Well, we have 
we've been fairly traditional in our approach so far, mostly because we're, we're new, we're starting up, and we, we've sort of gone to what we know. So Dave Rummel, as I say, our managing editor, was at the New York Times for many years. So we've done a lot of projects with the New York Times. We've done projects with CBS News, where I came from. We've done projects with the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star, two of the big papers in, in Canada, both multimedia projects. We've done a couple different projects with Al Jazeera English, with a show called People in Power. So, you know, we've gone to some fairly traditional roots, but like the Strangers at Home project that we were just talking about, that doesn't have a, a broadcast partner and, and or a, a media partner at this point. And, and I don't think we're going to necessarily want one. We, we like having the freedom to create our own website and create our own, you know, sort of do it in our own way. You know, there's not an obvious place for a whole bunch of shorts the way that we've built this, but we want to have that freedom to do that. And maybe at some point to say we might turn this into a feature documentary and that we might end up ultimately get a, a broadcast partner. But we've talked to we've talked to PBS, we've talked to a lot of the sort of usual usual places. We've worked with PBS Frontline. First project we did, actually a student project, was was a project with, with PBS Frontline. We won an Emmy actually for best investigation. So I mean we've had some you know good track record with student projects. But as I say, we're really trying to bring this to a new level now. You know, we have a new project called called um, Hidden Costs that we're just starting to get off the ground. And we have a whole bunch of, of media organizations. We're sort in this early stages, so I probably shouldn't mention them, but <laughs> some very prominent news organizations, as well as the National Film Board of Canada, which has done some really pioneering both film and interactive work, as well as some scholars who and, and journalists who've been doing reporting on the hidden costs of our global supply chains. We get all this stuff, right? Well, what who made that stuff? You know, are there human rights violations involved? What's the real economic cost? What's the what's the environmental cost? There's been some incredible reporting. Martha Mendoza at AP, just like she and her team, have swept virtually every award out there, including the Pulitzer for, for public service, on a story investigation they did last year about slavery in, in fishing in Indonesia. And their reporting has led to the freedom of, of hundreds, I think maybe even a couple thousand people who were you know, captured off the streets and forced to essentially enslave to do fishing, to get fish that we eat back here in North America. You know, you can see that these, these supply chains are in, you know, shadows, and we want to sort of shine a light on what are the real costs of these. But to do that, to, to get those stories out there, we need major media partners to understand these issues. We need experts who, who've dedicated their lives to studying this and really great storytellers who can, who can make these stories interesting and compelling. That sounds like a, a great mission, and I wish you a lot of luck on it. What is the, what's next for you guys? Where, where do you think you're heading? On June 3rd, 4th, and 5th, we actually have a workshop in which we're bringing a lot of the, the journalism partners we have from all over the world to Vancouver, where, where we're based, for a weekend workshop called Reimagining Global Journalism. And I'm, I'm really, really excited about this because it's a place for, you know, imagine if you got like the 50 smartest people you knew around an area and said, what if we just re reinvented our field? Like blue sky in that way. And of course, we can't always achieve all of those blue sky missions. But if you could kind of present a way of doing global journalism that is ideal and idealistic, you can then set, you can set your bar and aim for that. So 
you know, I don't want this to be my project or, or the project of me and a handful of people that, that I have hand-selected. You know, we have brought in a really wide range, you know, journalists who, who all over the world, journalists who, who work as fixers, who work as producers, who work as, as reporters, podcasters, you know, a whole range of, of different skill sets, people who, who live between academia and journalism, even people who live between activism and journalism. And we're bringing them all together for a brainstorming session to figure out, figure out what's the next step in global journalism and, and what can the Global Reporting Center do to actually achieve those goals. And I'm, I'm going to be using that as really as our guide for where we want to take the Global Reporting Center from now on. Well, that sounds like a pretty exciting thing to look forward to in the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, again, we, we're going back to the academic funding. I mean, I'm really fortunate this uh, academic grant, the, the Social Science Research, the Humanities Research Council of Canada funded this. You know, we, we said to them, look, this is what we want to do. We're trying to create this new place. We want to bring in, you know, the smartest people into the room to think think about the future of global journalism. And to my amazement, they said, okay, sure. And uh, it's really allowed us to, to do this. And um, that's the kind of thing that you can do at a university setting. To, I mean, you know, university researchers and professors, that's what they do. They spend their days thinking about things and, you know, theorizing. We're able to bring that sort of theory and the practice together. Well, that's, that sounds great. Thank you very much for coming on on the podcast. I knew just a little bit about GRC and everything you tell me about it, it sounds like, like something is really wonderful. And I think global journalism needs this kind of focus. And I'm glad to see that you, you guys are doing that. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for your interest. I really appreciate it. Next time on It's All Journalism. The middle class dream is so built into our sense of who we are as Americans. And I think it, I mean, it is a great question that your daughter asked is like, what, what is middle class and who is middle class anymore? And I think that, um, that we don't really know anymore. Like that word gets bandied about so much. Politicians love to talk about how they're going to help the middle class. Everybody identifies as being middle class, but often were not. And, you know, and the idea of like, who, who even is making middle wages anymore has really changed as the economy's changed. In our next episode, I talked to Chrissy Clark, a reporter for American Public Media's Marketplace. Based in Southern California, Chrissy talks to me about her new podcast, The Uncertain Hour. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can find us also on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and now Google Play. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Grisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>